and we are come on and we are recording and yet again zoom isn't uh, cooperating what a surprise today is episode 945 on saturday october 8th 2022 at 4:07 p.m eastern time with mr jeff nyquist who ironically enough there's a weekly guest i have on and i've been having on every week for probably the last 18 months uh claire lopez who brought you up in our last episode on thursday she brought up jeff nyquist and oh i know she, claire yeah, yeah. And, I, I, and i had just gotten off the phone with you like 20 minutes prior oh, is that I, right? I was like this is kind of weird but um small world yes yeah. Yeah. mr nyquist please introduce yourself to everybody oh well i'm jeff nyquist i'm a writer i've written a number of books uh my first one was the origins of the fourth world war my most recent one is the lives we lies we believe in um and the fool and his enemy and uh, the new tactics of global war and so on um i've written for world net daily newsmax epic times i was a long time columnist for financial sense online and um, currently I'm just free blogging it and doing a lot of interviews and loving the research and watching these events unfold in Russia and China and the crazy events here in the U.S. and uh, trying to figure it all out. In trying to figure it, figure it all out, could you just look at what's happened from February till now and give any sort of accurate prediction of what will come? Because I've been having on people here for the last six months that in March, we're saying it'll be over by April and other people are saying nuclear war by summer and Putin mm. will be dead by August. And here we are. And it still just seems to kind of be poking along. Well, never make predictions, especially <laughs> about the future. Right? <laughs> All right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's look, um, fortunately for me, I I was trained as a political scientist. I went to graduate school. I was in a PhD program for political science 30 years ago 30 oh my gosh 32 years ago i left that program um and so uh but before that before i got interested in in political science i and i had a lot of interest in psychology uh and now more in philosophy um i was interested in military history and have had a lifelong fascination with military history. And this is what uh, wars are very hard to predict. But then I am reminded that if you really know your military history and you really know the sides involved, you really know them, not easy to know, you can make predictions. And you can make predictions in this area that are, are remarkably accurate. And uh, I think of the military historian John Mosier who I corresponded with a little bit here after the war started because he wrote the best book, what I think is the best book on the war between Hitler and Stalin, the what we call the Russian front, remember? And and uh, Colonel Klink in Hogan's Heroes was always scared of being sent to the Russian front. <laughs> uh, it's where the Germans and Russians fought. It was where most of the death and destruction occurred in World War II in Europe. And um, his book was called Death Ride, Hitler versus Stalin. And in that book, uh, you know, he he broke some ground, I think. He he talked about the fact that the Russians, uh, the totalitarian communist regime of Stalin and the Russians generally, they lie. 
about everything, pretty much uh, even when they don't have to, just to keep in practice, it seems. And much of what we know from World War II that's taken from the Russian side is distorted. And historians have not been skeptical enough about that, uh, the information coming out of Russia about World War II. And so they've completely misread the war, military historians have. And I've argued this again and again, and I, I think he's right, which is what makes his history so important uh, of all of them. And Viktor Suvorov, a in fact a Soviet defector, GRU defector, wrote a book, a uh, couple books. One called um, "The Chief Culp Culprit" about uh, the Soviet Union, how World War II started, and the Soviet role in that. And the other one is called "Icebreaker." And he had a similar take on the Soviet military that uh, Mosier does: that the Soviet military has some powerful capabilities over history, but they bungle a lot. They make a lot of mistakes. And what we've seen since February 24th is this bungle factor. Uh, poor logistics, poor organization, poor training, poor leadership. Um, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is if your instrument is uh, flawed. You will not be able to carry out an effective attack. Um, now there's the question of you know, as some people, you know, I have pointed out that Russia engages in deception operations and they fool people and they have something called Maskarovka. But uh, no, uh, these bungles are not faked. They're real bungles. You know, they really did try to surround Kiev. They did have paratroopers shot out of the skies, paratroopers massacred on the ground that they tried to use to surround Kiev. And they lost their attempt to surround Kiev, kill the government of Ukraine and uh, end the war through decapitation quickly. That didn't work. The Ukrainians stood up and fought. It seems the Russians did not think so. When the Ukrainians blew certain rail bridges, knowing the Russians rely on rail supply, they got an excellent rail system in Russia. The Russians didn't realize what that would do. I, was, I talked to one of NATO's lead uh, cyber war guys. I had a, a privilege to participate in a... Uh, meeting um, what three weeks ago maybe and he told me something I'd never heard that that hackers had hacked the Russian logistical computers for their military that was helping to do all of their logistics so and and another thing I, I've heard I've learned since this war began is that the Russians and the Chinese also are good at doing cyber attacks but they're very poor at cyber defense hmm. they have um, they're sloppy about their security. There's the famous story, it's it's told in this recent um, documentary about uh, Navalny and his poisoning, that the head of the F FSB in, in uh, Moscow, his password to his email account was Moscow1. Yeah, I see your face, yes. Sometimes, sometimes you just get what you deserve. Uh, well, he got hacked, of course, as you might imagine, and he changed his password. Now this is even more incredible. He changed it to Moscow too. Didn't who was the who was it? Was it the head of the Clinton campaign in twenty sixteen? Oh yes, yes. What, what yeah. was it Robbie Mook or someone and the password was password? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> sometimes you sometimes you get what you deserve. <laughs> people are lazy, they think it's not gonna happen to me. You know, it's like the people, it's like a friend of mine who was overweight and and liked to drink the the um, supersize Mountain Dews every day. And I said, hey, man, you're going to get diabetes. You're going to 
you know, you're going to have a heart attack and die. And yeah, he did. He got diabetes and he had a heart attack and he died you know, eventually. It just took about 15 years, but, yeah. um, but, you know, but he, you know, people, there are things, you know, you talk about predicting things, you know, I called it, I said, he's going to die before he gets past 50 and he died at 50 on the nose. But I could predict that because I knew other people who ate like that and drank like that. And they died at 49, they died at 50, they died, you know. Um, so it's like when you watch somebody's habits up close, it's like I was an employer once and I could practically predict how long somebody would last <laughs> before really? they would have to be fired or... Yeah, because you watch them closely and you go, okay, he's got this about him. He's doing it this way. That isn't going to work for him very long. It ain't going to work for me. Did you, you can, did yeah. you ever meet an employee that was just rock solid? Oh, yeah. You ever oh, have yeah. one? You're like, this guy's going. This guy's, this oh, guy's going to leave, well, leave me. When I was uh, an employer, I had two guys that worked for me. This is in the 90s who were World War II vets. Okay. This is in the early 90s. They were World War II vets. Uh, one was 69. The other one was like 71. And oh my gosh, they went above and beyond. They were the best. And I thought these World War II guys, oh my gosh, what we had in that generation. I mean, I just, just I, I, yes, yes. So solid. Um, and that was the big shockers. I thought, you know, I, I'm from, you know, I was born in 1958. I'm from a generation. We're workers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're pretty reliable people. We show up on time and stuff. But these guys, man, they were they same were so year, good. Same year as my parents, fifty eight and fifty nine. Um, yeah, no, my uh, my uncle Rich passed away, I think, in twenty ten. He was eighteen on Omaha Beach, survived, uh, killed a bunch of Nazis, took their daggers. I remember him wow. showing them to me. Uh, came back working in the FBI for fifty years. Just I mean, you're all American, just God fearing patriot, you know, parent, grandparent, just upstanding member. And I remember when I first started lifting weights. In like 2003, my dad had gotten a bull flex and I was 13 and I was like, I want muscle. And so I started working out <laughs> and I remember I was in my aunt's basement up in New Jersey where he was retired at the time. And uh, I remember he walked down to the basement and uh, he was my grandfather's brother. My grandpa and his brother married my grandmother and her, her sister, which I guess was just something you did after the war was just find the first lady and go. And I remember he walked downstairs and I was doing, um, I was on a, a pull-up bar doing this, you know, where you, your, your palms are facing you. Right. And he said, turn your arms around. It's harder. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was doing chin-ups. He said, turn your hands around yeah. and pull-ups. And I did it's... it. And it's a lot harder. And those are the ones I still do to this day. But I asked why. And he said, because if shit hits the fan and you're being pursued by a Nazi tank, you cannot climb a fence like this. You have to climb it like that. And I've been doing I've been doing pull-ups for 20 years, but mm. kind of just a different level of they just walk down and drop that advice. And then they just go back up like nothing happened <laughs> in case mm. a Nazi tank is pursuing you and mowing down your friends. You can't run or you can't climb a fence. No, well, that uh, you could tell that made an impression on him. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, the World War II yeah. is different, yeah. different breed. Yeah, very different. Um, but um, getting back to the Ukraine war, which is, you know, it's kind, it's, it's, it shows the more things change, the more they say the same as the French say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, John Mosier was one of those guys who predicted that Russia was going to have terrible problems. They were going to have this bungle factor. He didn't use that terminology. That's my terminology. And he was right. They did. 
they had a number of failures. And you've seen maybe this, there was a, the uh, Russian paratrooper who defected and got out to the West and had his memoir written of the first months in this war where he he goes in and they don't even tell him what they're doing. They don't even explain anything. And he doesn't have a sleeping bag. And it's winter. They invaded in winter. He doesn't have a sleeping bag. This guy's a paratrooper. He got like some kind of injury from sleeping on the frozen ground without a sleeping bag. I mean, you know, you get things happen to your bones, you know, when you do that sort of thing. Um, and I, it's just, you know, just, I, I used a translator and translated some of this stuff uh, that he had in there. And it was just appalling what these poor Russian soldiers had to go through, what their officers made them go through. And what you realize, what you have in Russia is a highly centralized command system where nobody's allowed to have initiative because nobody's trusted to make a decision. You know, you ever have a real controlling relative who, whenever you're around them, they have to tell you everything to do and they're always correcting you and nothing you do is ever right. That's the Russian military. So people don't like to work for people like that. And they don't, it doesn't really work well for anyone to be micromanaged or controlled and not to have initiative. Whereas in like the German military in World War II, which was able to fight, you know, Russian forces several times the size of theirs and beat them was because they let their officers and their NCOs have initiative. We do that in our army. Mm -hmm. we, we're Western countries where we more believe this freedom thing extends to many areas in our culture including incentive. our military culture incentive yeah, yeah. incentive uh, yeah general mattis uh talks about it in his <clears throat> biography uh call sign chaos by bing west right um and and he calls it like taking the city he goes mm -hmm. I, I tell the men what we're doing we're taking that city and we have a general plan but if the bridges get blown i don't have i don't have a hundred thousand marines with their their hands in their pants going now what no, no, your goal is still take the city. If the bridge isn't there, cross the river. But yeah, figure city. it out. Take the yeah. city. Yeah. Figure it um, out. Yeah. Um, Do you think that's indicative of the whole? Is that kind of like a canary? You see a guy, a paratrooper without a sleeping bag. Is that kind of. Didn't the Germans say that uh, after D Day, they had found some dead uh, US officers and had, you know, taken their stuff? Or no, sorry, some dead U uh, GIs, not even officers. And the GIs had better rations than the German officers who normally would get the best. The Americans had like chocolate and cigarettes and they were like, oh, yeah. And they're like, that's when the guy was like, that's when I knew that the war was over. But yeah, Germans often made those comments. Also in World War One, they they say that in World War One, uh, in the Ludendorff offensive, when they broke into the American trenches and they saw the rations, the Germans were had very sparse in world war one it was even worse for the germans they saw the american rations instead of being elated at their victory they were demoralized at mm -hmm. what they were up against um the thing we don't understand is that the british blockade in both world wars of germany limited their access to food oil raw materials of all kinds and the rationing was horrific really um this is a funny story hitler wanted to close all the uh the hair salons because it was too expensive it was using too much resources to for women to do their hair and Ava Braun actually talked him <laughs> out of it the the boys have to have something to look forward to when they come home you can't have the women not fixing up their hair um, but there is there but there is some truth in that i mean yeah. there is just the basic things though like you have to have 
when it and I say this as someone that's never served, but I would imagine like when it's drawn out to the limits of like uh what a human can survive, those little things do matter. I mean, I've interviewed yeah. tier one guys uh, a million times before, Delta Force. They always talk about just little things like, no, it's important when you have a supply chopper come in the middle of the night and drop some like uh dry socks. Yeah. They're like, you don't understand how big that is on morale. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, this is a discussion I, I, I had years ago with a, uh, I was meeting with a GRU defector, a military guy, Colonel Stanislav Lunev. It was August of 1998. And I was there with a journalist and that journalist had asked me uh, before, he said, well, what's the most important, how do, how do Americans think you win wars? And I said, logistics. And he said, well, what is this Russian going to say? And I said, well, He's probably going to tell you that it's surprise, right? Yeah. So we get in the room with Lunev, and um, uh, the uh, the journalist says, "Well, what's the most important thing in in war?" And he said, "Surprise," <laughs> <laughs> which of yeah. course I'd read the Russian book, so I knew that's what his answer would be. But but uh, and then the journalist looked at me and goes, "Well, that's what just what you said, you know. But if, what about logistics? You know, doesn't that count?" And of course, the thing that that of course you have to understand about the Russians is that they see the nuclear weapon as the big war-winning weapon in, in their books like Soviet military strategy, which is still basically basic to their thought. Uh, Marshal Sokolovsky was a genius. He invented their winning plan in 1944 on the Eastern Front. Uh, the idea is that if you hit somebody hard enough with enough of these nuclear weapons and they have a you know, 30, 20 minute flight time, depending on where you're striking, and they just obliterate everything in the target and you do that, um, how can you lose, right? You get everything first, you wipe out all the enemy bombers, you wipe out their missiles, you wipe out their leaders, their headquarters, their industry, their oil refineries. How are they going to fight you? They're going to lose. Uh, so it doesn't matter if your conventional military is, uh, is somewhat inefficient comparatively because your military is going to walk over anything because you have strategic nuclear supremacy at that point. That was uh, that's that's how Eisenhower wanted us or I guess Truman first, right? Get Truman, then Kennedy, then Eisenhower. But I guess Eisenhower as the as the five star general and then Truman as the commander in chief. That was how they wanted to sort of rearrange American policy right after 1945. It was like, we don't need to match the Soviets tank for tank if we can just use tactical nuclear. And then push came to shove. And in 1950, when MacArthur wanted to drop them all around Korea and Truman let him go, he didn't really go forward with it. But um, you can kind of see how a little bit of that mindset did actually bleed over to the United States. I think it was Curtis LeMay talked about the Titan II, which had a nine megaton warhead. And... Uh, you know, somebody in Congress was like, what's the difference? Nine megaton or 500 kilotons? Hiroshima is 15 kilotons. They're all Armageddon. And I think LeMay said something like, no, like, I get what you're saying. And like, you guys can keep your whatever 500 kiloton SLBMs. I'll take my nine megaton one. And they're like, why? And he's like, is shooting a BB at someone isn't the same as putting a bowling ball in a cannon and shooting at him? Like, no. And he's like, case in point, I'll take my, but there was that. And then when they detonated Zarbomba, which is what, 58 megatons, we talked about how we didn't need it. But then I think it was declassified only like 10 years ago. We actually, Curtis LeMay, like went on like the stand and talked about the importance of the psychological factor of us getting a 100 megaton warhead, which they were going to call the the BTV, the big test vehicle. 
And then I've interviewed Richard Rhodes before, who wrote the book, uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And he and I were sending articles back and forth. There was also something that I've only learned about this year in 2022 called Flashback, which was supposed to be over 100 megatons. And they, they acknowledged that there was no that it was much more efficient to use multiple smaller warheads yes, because of the, you know, the inverse square law, whatever. The cube root. Yeah, cube there you root. go. Cube root. Yeah. Correct. I failed. If you can't tell, I took calculus four times in college. <laughs> but but that being said, despite all the strategy, despite everything, and despite LeMay being a bit of a logistician himself, they still there. there is that almost childish, boyish, caveman grunting like even when all logic is put out they're like that being said we would also like a 100 megaton toy but i guess you could see how i don't know maybe that's evolved since then sorry i know i keep side mm -hmm. derailing the no that's interesting no very interesting um yeah it's uh well it, it's it, it you know and, it, and you're talking about people like lemay who fought in world war ii mm -hmm. who led our strategic bomber forces um in that war uh who had certain set ideas certain theories about war about what weapons can do what mm -hmm. the psychological effect he talked about the psychological effect and of course it was very controversial after the war that people uh, looked at the you know the uh strategic bombing survey that said that mm -hmm. well USPS. maybe we didn't yeah. we didn't win the war with bombing uh, that might have been a waste of effort because german production kept going up and up and up despite the bombing mm -hmm. and things like well we were bombing factories that were based on false premises of how to build things and yeah. that the new factories turned out to be much better and faster <laughs> than the germans had to build and then they would build things underground that we couldn't attack. And yeah. And so then all of a sudden, you know, and it's like, but what really killed the Germans was when the Russians occupied Romania and got cut the oil field. So the German uh, Germans had um, um, a synthetic fuel plants to mm -hmm. make synthetic Bo petroleum. Buna. And they didn't have enough of it. Uh, to make in the Battle of the Bulge to make it so if the tanks broke out, they'd have any gas to really exploit the breakout. Yeah. So, and, um, uh, I, I, I didn't know this until this year. Uh, one of my favorite books is Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. It's all about continuity of government, uh, Cheyenne Mountain, Mount Weather, Sidar, Greenbrier Hotel, all the, I, I just love it. I never knew that one of the guys we brought back through Operation Paperclip. I mean, I know it's we did all the rocket scientists, and then as I've read more over the years, it's also about biological testing, uh, chemical weapons, the space technology. But one of the guys we brought back was actually someone that we had we had captured and marked to not have killed at Nuremberg is when we were doing the USBS, the U.S. or the Strategic Bombing Survey. And they looked at things like Nordhausen and how we had bombed them so many times, the U-boat pens, which was like 30 meters, like 90 feet of concrete, and how they were like, oh, yeah, no, we just kept on trucking. Like, I forget that guy's name. He actually came back and was directly involved with the uh, schematics for NORAD and uh, Raven Rock. So we had brought him back because we were like, hey, we bombed the shit out of you. And he was like, yeah, no, like we kept going. And we we're like, cool, design that here. Um yeah, the, a lot of people don't know this. We dropped the equivalent of 600 atomic bombs on Germany during World War II. Just a little more spread out. 
and it was probably more efficient for being spread out because as you as you would say if it's all in one giant bomb it's not really getting out because of cube root so yeah. we really hit germany hard i mean most of the major cities were leveled yeah uh there wasn't a whole lot left you look at those pictures it's just dreadful uh but they kept fighting they were fighting straight through the whole thing and it's just it's just stunning you know, I'm what saying. modern weapons can, you know, that they could make their society work that way. Um, it, and of course, it is a lesson for us. It is. and But then it's weird because you look at something like like Vietnam, where we then take the USBS, we do Rolling Thunder, we do Linebacker 2. Um, and then you look at, you know, GWAT in Afghanistan and Iraq. And granted, it's more JDAMs and out of B1Bs. But we still like leveled these places. And I don't, I don't mean to make light of it. I mean, Indochina, right? We killed 5 million in Iraq. We killed 1.5 million. Like it's, it's absurd. You think we actually killed 5 million people in Iraq? No, 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 no. I think there isn't the estimate for Vietnam civilians. I think it was 5 million civilians for Indochina. And then Afghanistan and Iraq isn't the estimate 1.5 million. I have no idea. I didn't. Yeah, I really, you know, I having studied the Vietnam War, I don't believe those numbers. Well, we're got, <laughs> those numbers uh, are too high for a country of that size and population. It's too many people. Um, well, yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not married to these numbers. One tenth, right. whatever, whatever, yeah. five hundredth, whatever. I don't know what the numbers are. I know. Look, um, we did not bomb. You know, we did not bomb cities like Dresden in v Vietnam War. We weren't sure. bombing. Uh, you know, uh, intensive urban there. areas. We weren't doing that. Um, and but in uh, I guess Germany, Japan, we did. You know, the uh, Dresden, uh, Tokyo firebomb. Tokyo firebombing killed more people in one night than Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Oh yeah, that, there's know? a there's so, a different level of of total war commitment, right? Um, isn't well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, uh, you know, I am not uh, in World War Two, I would have been uh, very much against strategic bombing. First of all, it was illegal. We'd all the countries had signed, I think the US had signed uh, treaties that, that we weren't going to do this to cities. And we did it. And uh, in fact, uh, Hitler at the opening of the war, my understanding is he bombed cities where people like the Pol Poland were trying to use the cities to hole up in. Then there are legitimate targets, but the British were the first to actually bomb cities that were not involved in military operations, right? Right. And of course, the Germans didn't develop a strategic bomber. A lot of people don't know that. Germany didn't have a strategic bomber force. Uh, the British and the Americans did. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese did too. Um, but uh, strategic bombing evolved as a form of warfare with atomic weapons to this thing that's really horrific the idea that you're going to make um you know cities targets of nuclear attacks and uh i you know this is just me i think it's immoral sure <laughs> i think war should be between soldiers and armies and the civilians shouldn't be targets that's a very medieval old-fashioned idea of mine but um hey, I'm, I'm 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 with you i'm with you on that outlandish idea we should try to reduce the the destruction of it all yeah but i also I also get how it could almost break one mentally to like be in World War II and you've lost how many soldiers and you just start going, burn it down. And I'm not, it's not good. It's not a good justification to defend the, the primal instincts of man. But 
I also get how it how it breaks people. I guess in my own experiences, right? It's kind of a sidetrack. If you can't tell, this is how the podcast goes. It's just way off in right field. I mean, in college, I was a pretty intense person. I studied all day, every day, worked out every day. At 4.0, I got into medical school and pharmacy school. It was really just a, a very serious person. And I would never, I could never understand people that didn't try harder or work harder. And I would always say that's just an excuse. You know, if you want it, go get it. If you're not happy with your grades, stop drinking on a Friday night. That was the number one party school in the nation. I went to one football game. I really had no sympathy or empathy for anyone that didn't work hard. A couple months after I graduated, my oldest sibling committed suicide. Oh, that's and, terrible. And that broke me. I mean, I gained, I'm not even kidding, I gained 67 pounds over the next two years. I was addicted to multiple drugs. I had to move home to my parents' house in 2016. I lived with my parents from age 26 to 31. No, 30. I moved out last April. And when I was at that lowest point, you start, I mean, really just, you start going for the jugular because you, you're you're driving yourself mad to get back to any porn, point of normality, right? To why would you move home with your parents? Well, dude, it's, I was just on the edge of san, insanity and I needed to pursue some sort of peace in my mind. And now I'm doing this podcast. It's making me a living. I've lost most of the weight, completely sober. I did a ton of therapy and I've kind of got my life. I feel more and more like myself in college. Like I can go and achieve things again, but that part of me, I can never, and I can feel creep up sometimes when I start to look at people, I can work harder. What are you doing? And then I have to remember that like, I had my own sanity shattered and I can only imagine that's one person. Right. I can only imagine if you're a world leader and you're just, you know, you're in Britain and like London's being bombed by, you know, V1s and V2s. There's probably a point where you're just looking around at each other and you're like, fuck them. Just burn them into oblivion. I'm, I'm lucky in that I didn't have an enemy. No one did this to me. No one took, no one killed my brother. So instead I had to search deep and go, you know, whatever the whole, well, of course, uh, suicide is a very cruel act against your close, the people sure. closest to you. Sure. You know, this is the hard thing. Um, yes, no, I, I think it's an important thing that people learn in life that uh, everybody has a breaking point and sure. you don't want to be tested to that breaking point. Yeah. You learn that, you know, I, when I was in boot camp and Marine Corps boot camp and I thought, Hmm, I wonder how I'm going to do with this. And uh, I did okay. You know, I wasn't a super soldier or anything, mm -hmm. but I, I was sort of mediocre. I was kind of in the middle um, on all my scores and everything. But um, uh, I thought to myself, I said, you know, I can see how uh, an attitude and experience uh, that that uh, the slightest thing, and you don't know what that weakness is. You you got to learn. You got to know yourself. Mm -hmm. You realize that you have weaknesses, that the world can get to you. It's just like uh, if you've ever had a sister that knew your buttons and knew how to push it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, somebody close to you knew how to push your buttons. It's like darn, she got to me again, or whatever, whatever it happened to be, whatever somebody did to you. And you thought, how come they get to me so much? You know, yeah. it's because they know your weaknesses. They know yeah. what it is that, that really bothers you. And, and oftentimes 
what I think bothers us is that uh, our existence is contingent. That is, we don't have control. And that's very scary. Yeah. And we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And we see what's going to, you know, there's this terrible line in Shakespeare in uh, Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet's girlfriend's uh, father has been killed and she loses her mind. And she has a line, she says, uh, Ophelia, she says, we know what we are, but we know not what we shall be. Mm. And when you think of what can happen to a person, this is what you should never think of. Um, and the the people who are, I suppose, brave, who who do brave things, they don't go there. <laughs> they don't. You know, yeah. because, you know, you, you watch Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and he says, why do we think of these things? You know, Russia could use the bomb. He was just interviewed by BBC here uh, a day ago, yesterday. And uh, he said, uh, why should the world worry about nuclear war? Why, why should they even think about this, he says. Um, because he's on a hit list. The Russians want to kill him. Uh, he's facing death every day. And he's just little Mr. Zelensky, the comedian who's got elected president of Ukraine, being attacked by big old bad Russia. The world is scared, so is more afraid of Mr. Putin than I am. Yeah. Why are they thinking about it? I'm not thinking about it. See, and so it's very, it's very funny listening to Zelensky because he is really very much inside his own experience. Yeah. And he's not understanding that we're standing outside of it. We really think we're outside of it, but we're not. Yeah. We we have this bubble we've put around ourselves. We're protected. We're America. We're invincible. Or we're the West. And let's hope that the Ukrainians don't hit that bridge in, yeah. in the Kurdish Straits because then the Russians might blame us for giving him the rocket that yeah. hit it, right? Because I don't I don't know if a truck really blew that bridge up. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe a rocket hit it because I keep watching over and over again the video and I'm seeing this flash from what looks like above, yeah. right? And I'm thinking, that's not the flash from a truck bomb. <laughs> I'm thinking, wait a minute. But of course, I'm not a demolitions expert. I'm just looking, I'm just a guy looking at this and thinking, a Syrian from the some refugee camp on the Russian side puts together a truck bomb and does this? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the Russians are trying to make their own people see. And Russia has the same problem that we do and that they felt invulnerable because they were a nuclear superpower. And they have felt it. Notice they do this attack. They invade their nearest neighbor. They knock down their cities. They hit them with missiles. They bomb them. They just, they have giant artillery barrages. And it's like, oh, you can't hit us. We're right across the border here. We're pretty close to you. But you, you know, we're invulnerable. You don't dare do that because we have nuclear weapons. It's like America has this idea. And it's like, are you living in some fantasy land? You're yeah. going to go attack a country and kill 50, 100,000 of its civilians. And you're going to think they're never going to touch one of yours. Yeah. If anything, it's they don't care that you have nuclear weapons, right? It's like the idea of blowback. When a drone blows up a wedding and some guy seeks revenge on you. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Why, Why wouldn't he live to kill you? I that's what I think about. As I always think about, like in one way, it is torture. That because right, suicide is a very weird thing to sit with. the The person did it to themselves. The person responsible for it is gone, and it's a person you love, and more than you're angry at them, and you do get angry at them. 
more than you're angry at them, you miss them and you love them. I always ima- imagine like, what, what if someone had taken that person from me? And I get it now when I'm, you know, you hear about like the dad that hunts down the person that like raped their kid. And you're like, how does that guy just, how does that, you know, how does a civilized man just lose? And then I think about it and I'm like, I'm thinking about it theoretically, something that didn't even happen. And it gets my heart rate up. And then I'm like, hey, whoa, that didn't happen. I'm like, relax, you know, but like, imagine if that happened. Then imagine if it was a whole other nation where there's now even a diffusion where you can just attack one nation. Yeah. What if they nuke you? I don't, you're going into it. You don't care. You've signed your own death warrant. This this psychology stuff, this war stuff is not simple. And the thing is you can study war in this business a whole lifetime and not get it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll tell you an interesting story. I was at the, in 2001, April, I was at the, uh, the event at the George Bush center on North Korea. They had a two day event and it was the day in which they had simultaneous briefings at the Pentagon and there that announcing that North Korea had two nuclear weapons. And I go to the lunch afterwards you know, I was a journalist that I was attending it and doing reporting on it. And I went to the luncheon and next to me sat a college uh, professor from the U.S. Army War College. And there were uh, three veterans of the Korean War. One of one was a friend of mine, a colonel uh, uh, who had been uh, a, an army doctor, an army surgeon in the 7th U.S., uh, the, the 7th Regiment of the U.S. Army, and a bunch of other guys who had fought in the war. and. Um, uh, this guy was, this professor was trying to reassure everybody, oh, it doesn't matter that North Korea has a nuclear weapon because nations are rational and they only would use the weapon rationally, you know. And um, I said, you know, I beg to differ because um, human beings have as much irrationality in them as rationality. And we don't fully even understand that bit. And uh, and he just gave me the worst dressing down I think I've ever had from a professor. And then I turned to the man across for me, which I, I think he would had won a bunch of medals in the Korean War. And I said, you were in the Korean War. Did you think it was rational? Yeah. <laughs> and he looked at me, and goes, hell no. That was the most crazy thing I ever experienced. It was completely insane. You know, and the, the professor never spoke to me again during this lunch. <laughs> but it's the. It is it, the very fact. I don't. I look at. Have you ever read? Um, not read. There's like a six part podcast series by um, what's his name? Dan Carlin about World War One, uh, called Blueprints for Armageddon. No, he's no, a guy that has a podcast that I've never listened to. It's called Hardcore History. But mm-hmm. there is one of the things he did, and it's a six part. He does a bunch of things all the way back to like Genghis Khan. But the only one I've listened to, and I've listened to it, I think three times over the last five years. It's called Blueprints for Armageddon. It's like mm-hmm. six parts, four hours each. And I know it sounds like a lot. It is better than any audiobook I've ever listened to. Really? And I've I'm, oh, I I'm, gotta write this down. I'll I'll, I'll text you as well. I, okay. I, I listen. I'm, I'm not kidding. Right. I I listen to an audiobook a week and have for about two years. So I, yeah. I that says something. It's better than any audiobook I've listened to. Blueprints yeah. Why waste for, time? Yeah. Blueprints for an audiobook. Yeah. Blueprint for Armageddon. Huh? And yeah. you, you where do you get it? Oh, you can just find it on YouTube. I I found it for free. So I mean, uh, by Dan Carlin, um, like like George Carlin, uh-huh. but he lays out. He walks you into World War One, mm-hmm. and it's so. And I always think about blueprints for Armageddon when I hear people talking about war today. It's echoing 
all the exact same sentiments. We could oh, yeah. never be at world war. There are our, our cities are too. Our, our our economies are so intertwined. Our people, our weapons are so great now, and our pop our cities are so populated that we would never it's use nonsense. Our, and yeah, you listen nonsense. to it, and if you just read that, you'd think it was someone talking about today. And then you, when was this written? Oh, oh, uh, uh, March 1914. And you're like, oh, oh, god. Oh yeah. Oh and, yeah. Yep. That, yeah, no, that's very famous. Look, uh, they were saying in 1913, Britain and Germany could never go to war because they were too dependent on each other economically. And so uh, all of a sudden, of course, it wouldn't work. It, it's echoes of the thing between China and America. Yeah. You know? well, the idea that trapped. you yeah. can't. And right now, China and America are getting ready to go to war. Uh -huh. I mean, it's happening right in front of us. And look, all the signs are there. The thing is, is that People do not know history. They have these superficial ideas. And like I say, they like to feel secure and have this bubble around them. Yeah. And one of my theories, one of my one of my few contributions to sociology, political sociology, is, is that um, the shop I call our society the shopping mall regime. And what it is is that we now, because it's all about the consumer and all about shopping that we approach knowledge and understanding like shoppers. Mm. And of course, what is the basis of shopping is hedonism. What makes you feel good? Pick what makes choose. you comfortable? Right? Pick and choose what you want. Right. So now you're going to shop for thoughts or ideas that oh, make God. you comfortable. Right. Oh, is this no. not true? Is this yeah, not no, exactly it, what oh, we it absolutely, it absolutely. You see something you don't like, you go, I don't want to think you just close it out. Right. Now, I discovered this by accident because when I was in graduate school, I was reading Sokolovsky and Sidorenko and, uh, uh, you know, Soviet military strategy books. And I wanted to discuss it with other graduate school students that were already starting to work for RAND Corporation and spending summers working for the State Department or the CIA or, or whatever, or the Pentagon. And they didn't want to discuss it. In fact, nobody reads that anymore that's not important and it's like you this uh, you know this was the 1987 the cold war was going on nuclear war was a real possibility you had these giant nuclear arsenals and stuff and it's like they didn't even want to think about it and, and it was like you got to be kidding you're the people who are supposed to be thinking about it yeah and you won't think about it because yeah, it's too unpleasant you're not even some soccer mom that you, i was telling the story the other day no my little brother got married back in July, and I was sitting there with my other brother. We're just at some table, and uh, it's beautiful. He's aunt's, uncle's, cousin, you know, mom's crying. Your little brother's getting married. Oh, what a what a day. And it's, and I remember I looked at my older brother, and I go, hey, do you know we've drone striked weddings before? Oh, good grief. And, and, and I go, I go, I go, you, you start to understand why they hate us. And he looked at me, and he goes, not. Now it's not the time, man. And I was like, all right. <laughs> but that being said, like, that's a time that it shouldn't be brought up. Right. But what if I was bringing it up to somebody at like Rand at like, uh, you know. Right. And now no. even they don't. And they yeah. go, now is not the time. I go, no, no. no now is the, always the time. You're the right. drone operator. It's no. Well, it's, it's like it's your buddy with diabetes. It's not even yes. a deniable science. You yes. go, if you keep drinking the Mountain Dew, like, you're going to get it. Yeah. And of course, when I told him that, he laughed in my face. Sure. And I thought, should I feel offended, or should I be afraid for what's going to happen to him? And 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 he is dead now. Yeah. Uh, by the way, had both uh, uh, two legs amputated uh, before he died. So uh, you know, this is a very serious thing. Uh, you, you know, we have to live 
in a right way and it's a dangerous world there's you know like too much sugar is a danger and nuclear weapons are a danger and biological weapons and so you have to know your enemy right i yeah. mean it goes back to sun tzu know your enemy and know yourself and you'll in a hundred battles you will not lose a battle yeah. you'll win every battle yeah uh but don't know yourself and don't know your enemy and you won't be able to win a battle at all well i'm afraid we don't know ourselves and we do not know our enemies at all. We have this cartoon caricature of what they are. Yeah. It's yeah. very shallow. Russia is still the vodka drinking, you know, riding in on a grizzly bear, you know, 1980s Red Dawn enemy. And it's like, no, they're very much a modern peoples who can do a cyber attack. They still have nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons and missiles or something they're very good at. They're very yeah. good at missiles. Yeah. Um, and uh, they put the first man in space. They put put the Dirty first earthling in space. They put yeah. a dog in space, Leica. Leica, the first Leica, dog. Yeah. Yes. But um, look, the first satellite. Uh, you know, these people made the first actual working hydrogen bomb. We we made a house and blew it up. A house size object. We blew, object the, shot, and blew, we blew it up. the shot cab. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Which one yeah. was that? Which was the ID mic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know it. it What's what's really here is in that we don't understand what the other thing about nuclear war we don't understand here since we're on the verge of it is that, look, Russian strategists, and this is why Zelensky, by the way, uh, his advisors were educated when they were really young in Soviet military schools and stuff, his older military advisors. And so the, the, the interesting thing is that so Zelensky talks about nuclear war in a way that uh, it, it sounds bad to us. It's like. Zelensky's, you know, saying we should have a nuclear war. The other day he was uh, talking to this group in Australia and he said, well, you just can't sit back and let them hit you. You have to be preventive or pre preemptive, right. however you yeah. you want to, you know, he, he kind of tried to get out of it in this uh, interview with the BBC. But I heard what he said. I watched this whole thing that he, I watched it yesterday, his whole presentation on Australia. And no, he he's talking the way. A Russian general thinks and talks. It's like a nuclear weapon is just a grenade with a bigger blast radius. What are you talking about? You know, the residual poisons and stuff just make it a better weapon, you know. Uh, and the thing is, is that it's actually true if you study nuclear wars, different scenarios, that you only get the hot short term fallout if you ground burst it. The hydrogen bombs are very clean. So these air bursts, there's no problem. You could wipe out all these cities and there's not going to be any long term effect except for all the. You know, the, what happens in the cities when you melt when you melt steel and destroy plants that are moving chemicals and all the stuff that leaks into the groundwater. Uh, people don't realize the groundwater in Germany is pretty badly contaminated from all those bombings in World War II and everything that leached into the ground because of that bombing. Because of those bombings. So um, but we, we, we don't I don't think we understand that in war, what only matters to the general that's managing the war is victory. Hmm. It's pure strategy. It's, it's pure strategy. You're winning. And you, you read Clausewitz and Clausewitz says, Clausewitz actually contradicts Sun Tzu. Near the beginning of his book, he says, some people are going to argue that the excellence in warfare is winning without fighting, which is exactly what Sun Tzu suggests. Yeah, and Clausewitz said, this is an error which must be extirpated, he says. <laughs> he says, you, this is, you might think you're humanitarian, but you're not. He said, people do not give up unless you bloody them. Curtis. So that's, yeah, why he, and LeMay and these people, it's, it's the idea is you have to have a battle, a real test, 
and real bloodletting. And then people will go, ah, that's too much. And somebody gives up. One side throws down their weapons and runs away. I don't, or yeah. That's it. We give up. And you got to show that. You got to prove that. And it's like the battle is the decisive thing for Clausewitz and not for Sun Tzu. Hmm. See, all warfare is based on deception, says Sun Tzu. Right. But you know what? I, as a Westerner, I take Clausewitz to be correct because you look at the history between East and West and who's won. The Orientals have never beat us Westerners in a war. Not really. They've won battles, but they've never won a war. That's a good point. I mean, Sun Tzu sounds great. Mm-hmm. It sounds very philosophical. It sounds very meditating on top of the mountain, the old wise man. But like the reality is, is like we are we are chimps. We bare our teeth. We scream. I, I wait, Del, Del Comstock, Delta Force, the youngest ever member of Delta Force. I've interviewed him 50 times. He always says we are the warring ape. That's all we are. And we can talk about ideas and this, that, and the other thing, but it always comes down to like when someone gets punched in the face, you very quickly see what is and what is not. And although I like the idea of Sun Tzu and trying to maneuver without it, I'm not a violent person. You do look at someone like Curtis LeMay and, you know, we should use weapons. We should use them overwhelmingly. We should use them like brashly and criminally we should bomb them and bomb them some more i'm paraphrasing because we will end up saving more lives if you go over the top and which again easy for me to say 77 years removed he was also worried about being tried for war crimes if we lost but yeah there there's a lot more truth to clausewitz that's what yes Clausewitz is deeper, and there's another theorist in the West, there's Vilfredo Pareto, who basically d- described two human temperaments, the lion and the fox, out of Machiavelli's concept, that princes were educated by centaurs, and they were educated by centaurs because centaurs are part man and part beast, and of the beasts, they must be either taught to be lion and fox. They need the fox to avoid traps and the lion to drive away the wolves. Mm. That's what that's from Machiavelli's Prince. And Pareto said these two basic temperaments, and by the way, the Jungian temperaments are exactly the same, aligned with this. And you see one is based on manipulation and deception, and the other is based on the line is based on strength, on on the basically com, combat combat. So we even see it in here. And what Pareto said is that civilizations that are young, healthy, and successful are led by elites that are majority lion mostly lion when they're old and decaying and rotten they're led by foxes mm. now that's intriguing too that's very intriguing it's almost kind of a uh, to the idea of like the young dumb you know uh you know virile buck and it's like it almost no that kind of seems to be the smarter one there is almost a little more truth to that it's someone that's it's like drawing on debt and always be juggling 19 payments Versus you yes. look back at like the Great Depression and you're like, yes. they canned food and kept gold under their mattresses and never had debt. They also never got surprised by debt. They, you know, maybe they had a tiny house and they had a year of, you know, canned tomatoes in the basement. But they came from a place of learning versus like, what do we see? You know, 08, you just see or, you know, uh, in the 80s, you do see this all come crashing down. And it's like, who is and there and there's benefits to both, but I wonder if the ultimate evolution then is to have both. 
Well, Machiavelli said you wanted to be both, but men are rarely both. Rarely. You can rarely combine both. It is the Shakespeare temperament, as they say, that you have everything that you need in your temperament. There's that South Park episode that's like, this is what's so great about America. (laughs) We will will go and carpet bomb a nation, and then everyone will go protest in the streets about how evil this is. And no, the world doesn't know what to make of it. It's like, you're evil. And everyone's like, we are evil. And it's like, wait, what? And then we go and do it anyway. It's good or bad. I don't know. But it is, it does seem to be the ultimate evolution. I wonder then, I guess we'll kind of, and uh, unfortunately, we got to wrap this one up in a minute. Yeah. Because I got to, by the way, man, I'd love to have you back on for a longer time. I, I didn't think I was having another guest on today. I would love to schedule you again and we can, you know, right. I can just really go at it. Yeah, but, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk too much about Ukraine. And- <laughs> we, we didn't, unfortunately. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Which is normally it's why I try to schedule like two hours because we really flesh it all out. And, um, but um, I was I'm wondering then, is it good that Zelensky saying, why are you even thinking about this? Is there a benefit to just not addressing it and moving well, forward? Well, he's talking like a lion because that's the role he's in. That's what he's stuck doing. It's He's got to do that. He's got to be that role. He's got to be that guy. And um, we are thinking like foxes, we in the West. We're thinking of how we can get out of it without getting hurt. Is that possible? Probably not. Not in all cases. Eventually, you're going to get hurt. Eventually, you're going to get in a war. It's, a, it's just it's the way history reads. It's inevitable. It's eventual. It's going to happen. Is there, do we sort of have our cake and eat it too by having such a large military? Are we allowed to go abroad and act like foxes knowing that big military is there? And I'm not saying that's good or even that it's sustainable, but just where we are now. Well, the thing is, is it's not the military instrument itself. It's the people that control it that have this mentality. Hmm. And it's the way we've used it. Uh, we're foxes, we're clever, but we're not deep. We don't have the depth. Uh, they should have realized we shouldn't have gone into Iraq. They should have realized that we shouldn't have done nation building in Afghanistan. They should have realized that a lot of our interventions are pointless exercises in uh, loss of life and a waste of money, that we cannot make, remake the world in our image. It's not possible. We can't be God. We can't remake the geopolitical, you know, people, nations have character, they have history, they have, we can't redo all of that. It's impossible. Yeah. When a, when a girl starts dating some deadbeat guy, she goes, she's oh, going to change him. Yeah. I'm going to fix him up. And everyone's like, I'm going to change him. I'm like, I've known him for 20 years. I'll always love him, but you're not changing him. Nope. America, America is that sorority girl. I've found yep. this I found this old fixer upper of a country and I'm gonna no yep. you're not. It's gonna end with bombs. Bombs yep. and a divorce and some gunshots. Well Iraq is just gonna now become a part of Iran. Yeah. Because they're majority just an old Shiite. Fi- just an old fixer upper. Yeah. And when yeah. we move from one we move from Korea to Vietnam to now we're looking at Ukraine and we're like, we're just gonna fix it up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> If uh, I think you got a baptism by fire with this podcast, as you can tell, it's just it's just put your put the pedal into the metal and see which way it goes. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I do have to run. I have another guest right now. I'm going to text you. 
let's okay. let's actually schedule a longer one and uh we'll try to stay and by will i mean i will try to stay on topic and okay. uh, actually do something a little more productive but uh if you can't tell you we start touching on curtis lemay and bombing and that if you can't tell that's 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 my that's my passion you've done it's, some reading about warfare that's great i i i am fascinated by it absolutely fascinated by it. and on that note of warfare and bombing the B-21 Raider, the new stealth bomber, the successor to the B-2, apparently is going to be debuted in uh, this December. Maybe not in time. Maybe. I don't know. We'll, <laughs> see, we'll, we'll see. I've interviewed a, a B-2 Spirit pilot before. I'm oh, have you? Uh, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. I'm trying to get him back on. Oh, yeah. wow. Early on. He was episode 160, I think. He, hmm. uh, he wrote the book Stealth War. Um, yes. I'm trying to get him back on. Um but Mr. Nyquist, I'll text you this episode. Um, I will put all your stuff in the description. Text me whatever you want me to put in the description, links to websites and good stuff. And um, I will text you tonight after my other podcast. I would love to schedule another one sooner than later. And uh, for the next episode, I'm going to cut my own mic and I'm going to let you talk. Because <laughs> okay. as you can see, I'm a, I have puppy energy and I get so excited. And I keep asking questions. No, it's always it's always interesting. You said the magic word. You said LeMay. That's my... That's my activation word, Curtis LeMay. I'll right. have to not talk about. <laughs> have to not say, yeah, not use a, the c word. Not no. use the c. It's a, it's like a bowl with red, Curtis LeMay, or or continuity of government, and I'm just off to the races. Um, okay. thank you so much, man. Let's get to right. another one. I'll text you tonight, and we'll get it on the books, and I will uh, text you the episode when it's up. Thank you so much for your time, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. God.